I can't remember the last time I was so profoundly moved in reading a book. The book at hand, titled More Than We Expected, Five Years with a Remarkable Child. This is a beautifully written memoir by James G. Robinson, who has worked for many years with the New York Times, an adjunct professor uh, at uh, Columbia University's uh, School of Journalism, and the author of a book that uh, explores so many powerful themes of life and death and family and despair and hope, all tied up uh, in the story of the remarkable child mentioned in the subtitle of the book, Nadav. Nadav was born to James and his wife, Tali, uh, with a serious and complicated uh, congenital heart uh, defect. And uh, this was something which necessitated several surgeries very early in Nadav's young life. And sadly, uh, he was only to live to the age of five. This book is the story of, of course, the grief of that kind of loss, but much more than that. It is a book about the life that Nadav led, an all-too-short life, a truncated life, as Mr. Robinson says at one point in the book, but a life that was full and rich and blessed in so many ways. And his parents and his two brothers were blessed as well to know him and share their lives with his. And uh, that is what is explored in this uh, lovely book published by Post Hill Press. Again, titled, More Than We Expected, Five Years with a Remarkable Child. And James G. Robinson, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Greg, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It occurs to me that uh, we are recording this interview uh, not long before the holiday of Thanksgiving, and it will surely air just before or just after that holiday. And uh, it seems to me that this book, among other things, among many other things, uh, is a book about gratitude, and in particular, gratitude that in a sense is unexpected or gratitude that we experience uh, in unexpected, unanticipated ways. Could you just talk for a moment about all of the ways in which uh, even a story that in some ways, of course, is is, is terribly tragic is also a, a story of unbounded gratitude? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, my wife and I are lucky to have three remarkable sons, actually, um, two of whom were born healthy and one of whom, as you mentioned, Adav, was born with a heart defect. Uh, and we actually found that out before he was born. Um, during a routine anatomy scan, um, they found something wrong with the heart. And as a father, that's a, that's a devast- or as a mother, certainly as a parent, it's a devastating diagnosis uh, to know that you, know, you, know, you might outlive your son. Uh, and that's kind of a terrifying thing. Um, we knew that he would have to have three surgeries um, before the age of four. The hope was that he would get to teenage years and have a heart transplant. All this was terribly overwhelming and intimidating, both my, my wife and I, as we suddenly had to learn uh, all about pediatric cardiology when all we really wanted to do is just be parents. Um, but in retrospect, you know, I, I think his life was a profound privilege. Um, I don't think I would have changed any of it except the end, obviously. Um, it opened our eyes to sort of the miracles of life in ways that even being the parent of a healthy kid doesn't do. Um, it's funny, you don't realize how amazing it is that anything ever goes right until something goes terribly wrong. Uh, and we've certainly found that out uh, mm. with our son. Um, 
being sort of confronted face to face with trying to understand what had caused his condition, what had happened, um, and then how we could recover from it. At one point early in the book, you say this book is not a eulogy, not a meditation on grief. I wonder when you sat down to actually write this book, was that at all a temptation or at any point as you were writing it, did it, was there the danger of it tilting into a eulogy or meditation on grief or right from the start, uh, was your purpose clear in terms of what you wanted to say, the themes that you wanted to explore here? It, it's funny you, you mentioned it, but actually the seed for the, you know, the paragraph that seeded the whole book was actually part of his eulogy. Um, when he died, we had a memorial service, and, and I said a few words. And one of the things I said is that when I held him in my arms when he died, um, I felt nothing but pride. Um, you know, it's the sort of pride that most parents uh, experience over and over again throughout their kids' lifetime. Their first words, their first steps. They graduate from high school, they graduate from college, they get married, they have kids. This is what parents live for. And although Nadav only lived five years, um, we felt as many moments of pride in those five years as, as many parents do in a lifetime. We feel very grateful for that. But the intent of writing the book was more than that. Um, and I wanted it to be a celebration of life uh, and, and sort of a meditation on, on what it means to sort of come face to face with the unknown. I, I wrote it primarily to get these memories out of my head, to make sure they didn't haunt me, <laughs> that there would be something tangible and permanent that came from his life rather than just things in my brain. I wrote it for his brothers so that when they're old enough to understand sort of what we went through, they're able to learn from it and maybe helps them cope with the things that they deal with in their own lives, whatever challenges they face. And then I also wrote it for parents in similar situations and medical professionals caring for children like Nadav, because there were many things in our own experience that were eye-opening to me, certainly, um, having experienced, I think, four hospitals in his life, each of which did things a little differently. It was my hope that it helps parents and, and caretakers um, really take care of children like this as a whole human being rather than as a patient. And that's something else that's very important to us. One thing you haven't really touched on in all of that that you just said was something else you said uh, in this first portion of the book. Um, it is actually at a moment when you kind of describe in general your family as being one that does not keep things hidden. You write quite the opposite. We share emotions freely and often, bursting out in sadness or anger or uh, or, 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 or love, and, and amidst these eruptions, life persists, awesome and baffling and confusing. Writing helps me make sense of it. I think a lot of times we, we hear those words bandied about, that, you know, I, I sat down and I you know, wrote in my journal and it, you know, to help me kind of figure things out. Uh, but I'm really curious in your case, as someone who obviously lived all of these experiences very deeply and thoughtfully at the time, uh, how writing about it maybe helped you gain new insights or new understanding that you perhaps didn't have in the moment? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, when I started writing it, I did not write it as a book. I wrote it as a series of essays. Um, every night I would sit down, just because I had to get it out, and write a thousand words about a particular topic associated with his life. So I wrote an essay on anatomy. I wrote an essay on faith. I wrote an essay on food. 
I wrote an essay on parking because actually finding a good parking spot here in New York City is a challenging thing and was in many ways kind of a theme of our hospital life is can you get a good parking spot? It sounds ridiculous, but it had to come out. And so what I had was a collection of essays which, you know, were interesting in their own right but didn't really flow together as a book. And part of the feedback when I started shopping the book to agents, for example, was that it really needed to be a narrative. So what I did is I chopped up these essays into paragraphs. I labeled each paragraph with the date, whatever it happened, happened. And then I sorted it chronologically. And what I realized was there's a lot of missing pieces in the narrative. So for instance, one of the major moments in the book, as you know, is our decision to go to Australia um, with our three sons, a country we loved, uh, even though one of them was a cardiac kid. I realized that to explain that, I had to write about my history with Australia and I had to confront my feelings when I used to go visit my grandparents down there and, and cope with the fact that you know, when I left them each year, I might not see them when I came back. That was a difficult thing. Um, I wrote of another memory of my father that comes towards the end of the book, which really uh, helped me confront um, some thoughts around the fact that his father had died when he was 16 and finding the connection with him. And so when you are forced to write it through as a story, I think your mind is forced to fill in the gaps in a lot of ways, in a way that are not surprising, they're obvious once you do them, but in the moment, there's a wonderful feeling of the, p the puzzle pieces fitting together. And that's a very, that's a very comforting and very satisfying um, experience when you are wrestling with making sense of what in many ways is a very complicated and messy experience over those five years um, and a difficult uh, time. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with James G. Robinson about his remarkable new memoir called More Than We Expected, Five Years with a Remarkable Child. The remarkable child mentioned in the subtitle is uh, Nadav, who uh, was born with a very complicated uh, congenital heart defect and uh, endured a great deal uh, during his five years of life, but uh, also brought great joy to uh, to everyone who loved him, including his two parents and his two brothers. And uh, this book is a, a story about all of that and more. I'm so glad that you mentioned the fact that, uh, that your book spends some time talking about uh, parents and grandparents and so on, uh, because I, I really feel like that in some ways is a kind of like a leavening agent in, in, in the book. And and uh, uh, it, it really adds a great deal. I love the joke you say that your uh, father talked about in terms of how your, your ancestors ended up in New Zealand. Would you share that with our listeners and a little more about it? <laughs> well, I'm not it? sure it's a true story, but it's a good one. And we never let truth get in the way of a good story. Sure. Um, it, so, you know, um, our family is Jewish, originally from Eastern Europe and Russia on both of my parents' sides. Uh, my mother's side ended up somehow in Australia. My father's side um, had to leave around the turn of the century when there were a lot of pogroms. Um, and so his great-grandmother, by his telling, sorry, his grandmother, by his telling, sent his grandfather down to the docks to buy two tickets to New York because they had to get out of there. Uh, unfortunately, they spoke no English. They only spoke Yiddish. So <laughs> when his grandfather saw the word new, he said, that's the boat. But instead of ending up in New York, they ended up in New Zealand. 
because I'm sure how true that is. It is a good story. Mm. <laughs> and it's really interesting to to hear more about you know what they were like, and in a sense, what your your whole family has been like. And one of the things you say about your family is, "We were raised to feel a strong attachment to our past." What would be a couple of the most meaningful ways in which that was true, or uh, the ways in which you experienced that? Yeah, I think one of the big themes of the book is faith, uh, and and not religion necessarily. Although you know, there's a bit of religion in it, but but it's more about like what it means to have have faith and what role faith serves. For me, our Jewish faith, first and foremost, was a connection to my community. It was a connection to my ancestors who had come before. It was a connection to the other people in my life who who, who surrounded us. And what we learned throughout our whole experience is really how even people of different faiths can use that to come together which was very surprising to me. Obviously, when you stare at something as terrifying as, as your mortality, it's hard not to, to think profound thoughts. And one of the things I wrestled with was, was sort of that thing beyond our understanding, you know, the unknown things that, that we never can quite grasp because we're human. And I think different faiths are trying to struggle with that in different ways. They're all rooting for the same thing. And one of the surprising things for me throughout our experience was how we were able to connect to people of different faiths, in not a religious way, but just in a, in a very meaningful way, how faith gives you proximity to other people. Uh, and I thought that was very, very interesting and compelling. Mm. I want to return to something you touched on briefly. I found it to be a really powerful, poignant moment in the book. And this is when you were talking about what it felt like to visit your grandparents, really, halfway around the world. And, uh, and, and, as you began traveling there on your own, by that point, of course, your grandparents were quite elderly and becoming more and more frail. And, uh, and in your words, I started to wonder if it would be my last time seeing them. And returning home, I was often left with a ghostly sense of premature grief. That's such an interesting turn of phrase, and I, I find myself just continuing to think about what it's like and how often, maybe without naming it as, as, as elegantly as you did right there, how often we experience that kind of premature grief. And I kind of wonder what premature grief exactly is. And also if ultimately in, in, in your experience with, uh, with your son Nadav, if, if some of what you experienced was in a sense premature grief while he was still yeah. here, but wondering how much longer he would be here. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I think that's a common theme in the book. I did feel premature grief when I left my grandparents because I didn't know if I would see them again. And your body and mind, I think, tried to prepare you for the eventuality by rehearsing for it in a way. I always kind of felt the same thing growing up with my father because his father had died young. I was never sure if that would, if that would carry within the family. Um, and then again, you know, when Nadav was born and throughout his life, we, we couldn't help but feel that. Uh, I mean, it's hard not to feel that when your son is diagnosed in utero with a heart condition that it's, that it's um, you know, a death sentence. And there were times throughout his life that we were told that he wouldn't make it very bluntly by the doctors. And so your mind sort of like keeps on looking for ways to avoid that. Um, but at the same time, it tries to look for ways to accept that as well. Um, and, and that's a very tough thing to accept, and I think it often expresses itself in, in terms of grief. 
One thing I really appreciated uh, as you talk about your more immediate family, and in particular your wife, Tali, who of course figures very prominently in, in, in all of this, needless to say. At one point in the book, you explain some of the ways in which uh, you and, and she are quite different from one another. Uh, she being an engineer, uh, life to her is uh, a logical system that can be analyzed, understood, and improved. And you characterize yourself as more of a poet and philosopher, uh, seeing the world in broad brushstrokes. And uh, as someone who happens to be married to uh, a life partner whom I love, but with whom there are all kinds of really striking differences, I, I I guess I can appreciate how rich a marriage can be uh, when one looks at the world and interacts with it in, in, in very different fashion, even apart from kind of the central story of, of your book, uh, I wonder if you could just uh, expand on the intriguing differences between you and your wife, Tali, and what a difference that has made uh, both within this story of your son, but uh, also your just your entire lives together. I think our, our differences in many ways, I mean, we're alike in a lot of ways, but our differences are really where we draw strength from and that we're able to be there for each other in ways that, that may not be possible for one of us alone. And I'll tell you a story about, you know, our, our decision to go to, um, to Australia after Nadav's third surgery. We had the opportunity to fly down there um, with our three sons. It was a place that we wanted to go to. Um, very, very much to show our, our children. We actually took our older um, son when he was six months old down to meet his great grandfather, which was really a remarkable thing to um, to actually see him meet his great grandchild. Like meeting, <laughs> imagine me meeting my my infant's grandchild. I couldn't believe that. It was absolutely incredible. And so we wanted to bring the children down. Um, we brought them down, um, the three of them, after Nadav's third surgery, and and. Um, as you know from the book, um, he developed a blood clot, which required emergency surgery, and we found ourselves stranded in the hospital there. And I bring this up to show you an example of the ways in which I really drew strength from from the different ways in which my wife, Tali, um, sees the world. There was a point where he was not doing well. He had just recovered. He'd just come out of surgery. It was 10 hours, seven and a half hours in bypass. And I was ready to just go home and collapse and celebrate the fact that he had survived his surgery. And right before I left to go back to our apartment, the doctors pulled us aside and said, you know, we have to have a meeting. And they said, okay, meetings are never good things in hospitals, family meetings. And we sat down in a room surrounded by doctors and nurses, and the doctor looked us in the eye and said, I've got bad news for you. Nadav is not doing well. He's got a fever. And there are three things that can happen tonight, that could happen tonight. The first is that he can get better, and we're not expecting that. That's not going to happen. The second thing is that he could hold steady, and that's what we're hoping for. And the third possibility is that he could deteriorate, and if that's the case, there's nothing more we can do. And I was absolutely shattered into a million pieces. That was, I had reached my limit, and there was no way I could cope with that news. But Tali, sitting next to me, was completely still and calm. And she looked the doctor right in the eye, and she said, so what you're saying is that it's up to him. And the doctor mm-hmm. looked her in the eye and said, yeah, I, I guess that's right. And she said, well, I can live with that. I trust him. And that was 
such a profound reaction to such a difficult situation. That was the sort of strength that that just lifted me up and, and, and gave me the strength I needed to continue to cope with an impossible situation. I owe it to her. And I mm. hope there are some examples in the opposite direction. <laughs> Um, but but this is something that happened over and over again. She had a she has um, just a, a persistence about her, where she does not quite accept the worst, um, and and I I find that to be really remarkable. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with James G. Robinson uh, about his book More Than We Expected: Five Years with a Remarkable Child, the remarkable child in question, uh, their son. Nadav, one of three sons to uh, James and Tali. Nadav, born with a very serious uh, congenital heart defect. And uh, the book is uh, a memoir of the five years that they spent together. Uh, A a really remarkable book in, in so many different ways. One of the things you say early on is you anticipated the birth of your, your first son, uh, uh, oh, uh, Gil- Gilad? Gilad, yeah. Gilad. Um, you write, I loved being a father. It brought out the best of who I wanted to be. Tell us more about that, about how fatherhood for you, uh, not only in terms of your your experiences with Nadav, you know, chronicled in this book, but with all three of your sons, just fatherhood in general, uh, even outside this, this, the heart of this central story, how it has brought out the best of who you wanted to be. I remember when Gilad was born, I'm sure most dads have a similar experience, where suddenly the world transforms and you see the world differently. And you look around and you say, well, how can anybody else find the sort of joy that I've just experienced or bringing a new life into the world? And it was something that I, I, just, I just loved. Um, I just loved having another life in our family um, and being able to celebrate that, being able to show them the world and introduce them to new things. I think in many ways when you have a child, you're able, it gives you permission to look at the world with wonder again. Um, and I thought that was, that was just great. Um, one of the things we looked forward to every year was uh, organizing Gilad's birthday parties. Um, I went a little crazy with it. Um, I did wacky things. We just bought a whole bunch of random stuff and let the kids loose. Never quite turned out as I'd expected, <laughs> but I thought that was a great thing. Kids, kids just find this joy in chaos, and as a parent, you've got to be able to put enough structure around it to keep them safe. And they'll just be happy, you know, with whatever comes along. Um, and as, you know, we grew older and, and dealt with more challenges, I came to realize that kids also have this remarkable resilience and strength that I think uh, adults can learn a lot from, even if you're not a parent. Um, just the way that they see the world and cope with challenges, it's a matter of factness that I think uh, adults will often lack. And so there's a certain joy in watching that unfold through somebody else's eyes that, that being a, a father gives you permission to do. Hmm. So your wife, of course, ultimately becomes pregnant a, a second time and uh, is pregnant with twins. Uh, I wish you would share with our listeners uh, the uh, intriguing way in which you shared this happy news with, I think it was your siblings. My siblings, yes. Um I don't know. We have a tr- we have a history of like uh, jokes in our family, and instead of them telling straight out that we were expecting twins, I started with suddenly sending them emails with with random baseball cards of Minnesota Twins players. 
Um, and it took them a while to sort of catch on why I was sending, you know, what the pattern was and why I was sending twins and twins and twins. And finally they realized, oh, you're expecting twins. And we were. And in fact, I happen to be a Mets fan, but one of my most treasured possessions is a, is a twins jersey that I got when, when the twins were born ah. um, with my name on the back and the number three. <laughs> uh, so, so there's a bit of a connection there. Very good. So uh, at some point during this segment, second pregnancy, uh, you and your wife are, are informed uh, that there is a problem with one of the twins. Explain what was detected, I mean, and, and then, of course, the, the nature of what that problem at that point in time appeared to be. Yeah, I mean, the first anatomy scan did not catch anything wrong. Um, I think um, Nadal's brother was probably blocking the view of the person doing the scan. Uh, but on the second anatomy scan, um, the only thing they could tell us was that there was something wrong with the heart. That was what we were told. And that was, um, that was really troubling um, because at that point you don't know what it is. And I think one of the ways in which people cope with stress or difficulty is by accumulating knowledge. We knew nothing at that point until we um, actually went to a pediatric cardiology unit at our local hospital um, and had a three-hour scan of Tali's, um, the twins inside uh, of Tali, and um, the diagnosis when we got it was was not good. There was um, a single ventricle um, instead of two inside Nadav, and the other problem was that the heart was not connected to the lungs. And these were all symptoms of something called heterotaxy, in which the organs do not form properly. They're slightly off. Um, and although doctors are familiar with the, uh, the condition and there's a plan to address it, n- nothing is guaranteed and it can't be fixed. So the only hope for long-term survival is a transplant um, as a teenager because thankfully there are not a lot of infant hearts available. Um, so that was the plan, that we would have three surgeries to sort of address the problem and rework the circulation so that it was, it was – um, so that he was able to live with it until hopefully we got to teenage years. Right. That was – that was one part of the story, and I'm not. I'm not saying that you told it <laughs> without clarity, but it's it's complicated, and and it took me a, a, a maybe a second read to to sort out the, the the kind of the matter of these surgeries and so on, because you were told very early on there was no fixing the heart itself; it was beyond repair. So these three surgeries that Nadav ultimately uh, underwent. Uh, one of them when he was just five days old, they they were not in a sense to what we think of as, as repair the problem. It was, I suppose, like kind of a jury rig to to buy precious time. A- am I understanding that correctly? That's a great way of putting it. The first surgery is just to connect the heart to the lungs. Um, that's at five days old because there is a conduit that naturally closes when you're born. And that was the only thing keeping his, his blood flowing, so they had to repair that. That was actually the first surgery ever done. Um, the first heart surgery ever done on a, on a child was that surgery, and it's persisted to this day. Uh, the second two surgeries were designed to reroute um, blue blood from the body directly into the lungs rather than going into the heart. So the heart becomes a pump for red blood only. And yes, it's a little complicated. It took me a long time <laughs> when we were in this situation with doctors explaining to me to fully understand it. So I hope that I've given a sense of it, um, enough of the sense in the book that people understand what's going on. Right. One of the things that uh, I really love about the book is uh, the heartfelt descriptions you 
you share uh, about some of the people with whom you worked uh, most closely. And, uh, and, and in most cases, uh, your experiences were tremendously positive, to, to say the least. And one of them was with this first specialist with whom you met and who talked you through so much about this in what you call in simple, direct terms. And you said at one point in talking about that, that long consultation, we could already sense her humble expertise. And I just, I kind of got a chill as I read those words because it just kind of made me realize that's probably an extremely rare commodity that a whole lot of times expertise comes bundled with, you know, a certain kind of arrogance or overconfidence or whatever it might be. But to have humble expertise really says something beautiful about somebody. Yeah. I mean, we were very, very lucky to have such wonderful doctors around the world, as I've mentioned. And they all had a similar characteristic. They were humble and they were human. And one of the things that really struck me as we went through this experience was I, I kind of learned a little bit about, about how doctors work. And I thought the best ones um, had a certain humility. One of the most profound things a doctor said to me, and this is when we were in Australia, we were bombarding every so often we had a new doctor because we were in the unit and we would bombard them with questions over and over again. And they would invariably say something along the lines of, you have to be patient because we have to get to know him. And that struck me as one of the most profound things a doctor ever said to us, because what it insinuated was not that the doctor is there to heal the patient. Really rather it's that the patient needs to heal themselves And the doctor's role is to give them the best opportunity to do that. And that was very striking to me um, for a couple of reasons. One is that it sort of pointed out again how how amazing it is that the body actually does heal itself, even a paper cut, that it knows to do that. And in Dobbs' situation, it was far more complicated. And he coped and compensated within his body for the things that were afflicting him in ways that were really quite remarkable. Hmm. But it also showed to us the, you know, the role of medicine and the fact that, that you know, we did meet doctors. I think I mentioned one of them in the book who, who sort of sold the role. Like, I'm here to heal your, your child. And, and that was, came off for me as a little bit of arrogance because it lacked the humility and the humanity to really understand that, that the person you're caring for is, is not just a patient or a crossword puzzle. It's, it's a human being. Hmm. And the doctors who recognized that we found were really the best uh, clinicians. Right. Yeah, I, I was appreciated you know, after meeting a, a couple of people who seemed downright saintly. Uh, I, I appreciated your honesty in talking about, in particular, one gastroenterologist with whom you and your wife interacted. And, and you said he treated us like an obligation to be met. Uh, you also, uh, right after that, talk about an infectious diseases expert you met with, and this was because of the possibility that uh, that Nadav might be born without a spleen, which of course uh, raised certain uh, uh, serious issues. And uh, what he explained to you in terms of the most likely protocols that were not nearly as complex as you thought they might be, uh, he, he basically, you know, answered your question with something to the effect that uh, the, your son cannot live life in a 
plastic bubble. And, uh, and you said this, there was really deep wisdom in that, that life was more than simply avoiding death. And I guess that's part of what this journey was about as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you have a medical plan, it is a lot about avoiding death. It's about playing the percentages and trying to make the right decisions that will help your son survive. But I think along the way, you have to realize that there's life to be led as well, and especially when you know that there might be a possibility that your son might not might not live a you know, full life, that you've got to make the most of it. And so we did our best to balance those medical obligations with, um, with just being a parent and being a family. Uh, and it wasn't always easy, and there were things that we, we couldn't do, and there were things that we had to compromise on. But, but we decided pretty early on we would do our best to live life. Uh, to our fullest, the same way that we would do for any of our children, whether they're sick or not. Right. I mean, it's something, you know, one of the tragedies, I think, of being a parent is your kids grow up and they get old and you miss those days. I mean, every parent misses those days, I think. And so, you know, you might as well make the most of those magical years while you can. One of the uh, interesting issues here is that Nadav was a twin. What was it like to, especially in the early going, to e- experience the birth of twins who were on two such dramatically, drastically different paths. And, and, and what was it like, in a sense, to try to take all of that in and, uh, and to cherish both of your new sons, uh, one of whom, of course, required a very special kind of attention and care? Yeah, I mean, um, they're very different. They're very different kids, not identical. Um, very different personalities, very different approaches. I, I think when they're both tiny, it's a logistical challenge. I mean, one of the things that we had was that Nadav was in the NICU at the hospital, and Yaniv, his brother, was outside screaming his head off because he wanted to be fed, and you got to figure out how to be in two places at once, especially if you're the mother. But as they grew older, we sort of became, began to sort of recognize our individual personalities and appreciate them for who they were as separate beings. And, and yes, they did have different paths. Uh, certainly. Um, and I think actually as, as a twin, it's something that I will never understand those bonds that twins have, even at a young age. Um, but, but yes, very different. His brother was typical kid running around, energetic, burning out quickly, falling asleep early. Um, Nadav would learn to pace himself because he didn't have the same energy um, as other kids. His oxygen levels were lower. So he learned to pace himself and move a little slower. And then when it was time for bed, instead of falling right asleep, he would sit there in the dark with his eyes open, singing himself to sleep. <laughs> so so and that's a very enjoyable thing to have a diverse group of children and, and, and recognize them for who they are. I think it's a real, a real great thing. Explain uh, how you and your wife broke the news about Nadav's situation uh, to, your, to your older son, uh, Gilad. It sounds like you reflected on this deeply in terms of of what he should be told and how he should be told. So, from the time Gilad was born or able to talk, we made a deal with him um, that we would always be honest with him. And in return, we expected him to always be honest with us. I always thought that was a really important thing, agreement to have. Um, that if there was something terrible that had happened or something he was ashamed of, he could always be honest with us and he could tell us and without fear of us getting angry. And I said, if you're honest with us, we will not get angry with you. 
And so we tried to do the same in return. We tried to model it. And when his brother was diagnosed and, and born, we told him what was going on um, as simply and clearly as we could, but we didn't try to gloss over any of it. I think we said something like, your brother has a broken heart, doesn't work properly, it's going to need some operations to get it fixed. And at some point, I think we even said, there's a chance that he might die, which is a difficult thing to explain to a child. Um, but we always thought it was important to be clear about that because the worst thing that could happen in our minds is that his imagination might run wild and, and, and really frighten him and, and, and be detrimental to, uh, to him in a way that we didn't want to have happen. Uh, that honesty, I think, is a consistent theme. Um, it also extends to our relationships with doctors. Um, we tried to be honest with them. We expected them to be honest with us, to tell us clearly and directly what was going on without glossing things over or using euphemisms. And we tried to be honest with ourselves about, you know, the possibilities of what could happen and, and make decisions with our eyes open rather than trying to imagine that things weren't as they were. I think honesty is a really critical part of our, of our journey. Hmm. One thing that I thought was interesting that it, when you talk about uh, sharing this news with with people very close to you, family members and your closest friends, that uh, you often felt that sharing more information rather than less was, at least on some level, a, a source of, of reassurance. And I've never really stopped to think about that. I mean, we often kind of talk about how I, I'd rather not know or, or, uh, or too much information can you know, kind of lead to anxiety overload or whatever. But but actually, quite often, I think you're absolutely right that uh, that in, in 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 sharing everything that we know, uh, that gives us a sense, in, in a sense, kind of a framework uh, within within which to try to understand what's going on and coping with it. Yeah, I think for the most part it worked. I, I think sometimes you know we had a different point of reference that we didn't quite realize because we were so immersed in his care that things that were normal to us might be terrifying to other people. And in fact, I apologize to your listeners. I'm doing that now. I'm very comfortable talking about the death of a child. I'm sure a lot of people might find it difficult. So I recognize that. Um, but I'll give you one example of that, which was after his first surgery, um, he, had a, he came out of the operation with a collapsed lung, which was not unexpected for us. In fact, I think in some cases, they actually collapsed the lung on purpose, so it's easier to do the surgery. And it's just something that takes time to recover from. It's not a devastating diagnosis. But you know, when we came out of the surgery and my parents asked, how is he doing? I said, well, it's only a collapsed lung. <laughs> I think for a few minutes, they were a little freaked out. Um, but I had to quickly reassure him, like, no, 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 that's expected. It's not a big deal. Um, and, uh, yeah, making sure that you sort of understood that maybe we were so immersed in it and they might not be, and that might lead to some confusion was, was always important. Right. I want to be sure to have you talk about something that I think we just – grazed past a little a little earlier, but I think it is worth just talking about for a moment. At one point in the book, you write this, despite its many defects, I started to feel a sort of pride in Nadav's heart. It made him unique, one in a million, and as his parents, it gave us a special sense of purpose. And in all of its wrongness, it opened my eyes to the magic of how things ever go right. <laughs> in other words, this situation with Nadav and his deformed heart helped you to a, a new appreciation for the wonder and miracle that all of us completely take for granted, that, uh, uh, that most of the time, one way or another, somehow, 
our hearts properly form and properly function and, uh, and sustain us uh, to, to the end of life. Uh, tell us a little more about, uh, more about what you came to understand about kind of the wonder of how our bodies are formed. So, so I did not learn this from a doctor, mind you. I read about this <laughs> in the New York Times. But I'll explain to you what, what happens when we are just little tiny bundles of cells. We are uh, perfectly symmetrical. And on the outside of that bundle of cells, there are these little hairs that beat. If you've ever been in high school and looked at like an amoeba or paramecium through a microscope, you might have recognized these little things that beat and, and move the, the organism around, around the slide. Um, our, our embryos have these two. They're called cilia, and they beat the amniotic fluid around this bundle of cells. And they do it for a very specific purpose. They do it so that when this embryo releases proteins, that the proteins are laid out in the proper way that define how our organs form as we grow. Now, if the cilia are beating the wrong way, that is to say counterclockwise or clockwise, whatever the inverse of the, of the proper way is, the organs will form in a mirror image. So your organs will be reversed. You know, your body has a certain... Um, it doesn't, it's not symmetrical. And so your organs will be sort of like mirror image reverse. It's called situs inversus. It happens about one in every 20,000 people. And if the cilia are not beating quite right, the amniotic fluid sort of doesn't go quite right and the proteins don't quite go quite right and the organs don't go quite right. Uh, and that's what Nadav had. That's a condition called heterotaxy. The amazing thing to me about this is not only that this happens, which is insane, utterly insane, that your entire like formation of your organs is based on the beating of these tiny cells like cilia, maybe even just two or three causes to happen. But this process happens in about three hours. In time for dinner and a movie, your fate is sealed by the beating of these cilia. And I never would have grasped this, even if I had read about it. I never would have really felt it, how amazing it was, until it was this aha moment. It's like, oh, that's what happened to our son. And to me, it's not just amazing that like the silly didn't beat properly. It's that they ever beat properly at all, and that this really, really strange process actually forms our bodies. And it doesn't stop there. All these magical things happen after that, and certainly after you're born, all these magical things happen too. And it's, at some point, it stops being growing, and it starts being healing. And I don't know. I just find a real wonder in that. And there is something in that that is beyond our understanding that we will never grasp as humans – and I think much the same way that we have to accept that there's some things about death that we will never understand. There are also things that are about life that we will never understand. And what you're left with sort of as a human, this, this wonder and terror simultaneously that you have to deal with. And I think it's a lot easier to deal with the terror if you're also able to see the wonder in the world. Ultimately, of course, your book uh, chronicles the five years of Nadab's life and uh, all that you experienced together. And we leave it to our listeners to, uh, to explore that uh, on their own. And, uh, and of course, uh, you are unstintingly honest and open in the way you describe every step of the way and, uh, and, and including the, 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 the final moments of your precious son's life. And, uh, and what has unfolded thereafter. Uh, I wonder if you could say a word about your life together as a family and particularly for 
for uh, the two sons who are still with you here, uh, how all of you together remember Nadav and cherish your time with him, and, and how your other two sons are doing. Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think one of the nice, one of the main motivations for writing the book was to, to let him live a little longer in this world. And even if he can't meet strangers, at least they can meet him, like your listeners. Um, he was a lovely kid. He had a mop of curly blonde hair that stood up in all directions. He was really cheeky, um, very down to earth and smart. He enjoyed dancing. One of our favorite memories is going to a minor league baseball game in North Carolina and watching him just sort of stand at the rail and dance as the players played. Um, he was a pretty remarkable kid. His brothers, it's not easy for them. Not only did they lose a brother, but they went through this incredible trauma, um, which I feel terrible about that they had to go through it. Um, but one of the reasons I wrote the book, as I mentioned, is to, is to keep him alive so that they can, they can remember him and remember what we went through when they're old enough. They get older and those memories fade. You know, I was talking to his twin last night about what he remembers, and actually he remembers quite a bit, and that's really joyous too. You know, They weren't at the age when he died that I could really have conversations with them about how they felt, and I'm sure as they get older we'll have more and more of those conversations and, and wrestle with it together, and I think that's what it means to be a family. Right. Is that is that you, you you're together when you don't cope with these things, and we're all lucky to have each other. I'm really struck uh, by how your book is, on the other hand, on on the one hand, about some of the the great sort of all surpassing questions, the biggest questions that we confront, and yet it's also about the everyday and the concrete and 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 all that we experience in in each moment you write at one point it is human nature to wrestle with the blurry spaces at the edges of our understanding our own lives are just the latest chapters of an ancient tradition each generation confronting the same contradictions searching for some meaning trying to make sense of it all at some point however we must accept that there are some things we will never understand we are it is up to us whether we are left with a sense of frustration or awe it really sums it up very well i think thanks that's what the book's about is um is all the ways in which we had to confront these things and all the ways in which we we were privileged to see the world at its best and um and what we learned from it and my hope as i said is that it, it helps other people in similar situations um, that helps doctors caring for kids like that. But I think it resonates. I think it resonates with everybody. And one of the things that I found out, or I found out in talking about Nadav, is I'll often bring him up with strangers. You know, people will say, "How many kids do you have?" And I'll say, three. And they'll say, "Well, how old are they?" And I'll say, "16 and 12." And they'll say, and they'll "Sort of do the math in their head doesn't quite work." And I can I can decide. Well, I could say twins, and that's sort of the easy way out. Or I could explain what happened. And and a lot of times I find myself explaining what happened. And the reason I do it is because I think everybody's kind of wrestling with some sort of some sort of situation. And if it's not exactly like what we went through, everybody sort of has a similar story that they've we don't often talk about as a culture. And if this book and, and those conversations give people the opportunity to connect, 
Uh, I'm very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I encourage it. Like that's been one of the blessings of writing and publishing this book is having these conversations with people. I'm um, sure. And if people go to my website, feel free to reach out, and I'd love to connect with with the listeners as well. Very good. You write at one point there is something about a sick child that brings out the best in everyone, and that that is certainly uh, a, a radiant theme uh, in, in your book. And of course, at the heart of it is. Your precious son, Nadav himself, you write, his life, like any life, was a unique, inexplicable blessing. The book, again, is More Than We Expected, Five Years with a Remarkable Child, published by Post Hill Press, the author, James G. Robinson. James G. Robinson, thank you so much for writing this breathtakingly beautiful and meaningful book. And thank you so much for being my morning show guest. I was so privileged to speak with you today. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And if people want more information about the book, they can visit morethanamemoir.com.